John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Christmas, what we celebrate this day, changes everything. Changes everything. Uh, no, not the tradition of Christmas, not the trees and the lights and the opening of presents and the wrapping paper strewn all about your living room floor. Uh, I mean the mystery that's at the heart of Christmas. John tells us that the Word became flesh. The Word who was with God in the beginning, the Word who was God in the beginning, the Word who has no beginning, that Word became flesh. And that is what changes everything. Um, theologians have a fancy word for this. They have a fancy word for most things. Their fancy word for this is incarnation, the enfleshment of God. It's the startling, the startling claim that in Jesus, uh, we have a God who is also a human being. It's a profound mystery. It's, it's one that we can't really understand, but we can try to um, describe the mystery as it's been revealed to us. And, it, and if we try to do that, like we probably can't do any better than the church did in one of its early councils in uh, 451, the year 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, the church said that Jesus is one person who has both a human nature and a divine nature, and that those two natures are combined in this one person um, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. It's actually worth memorizing that. His, the, in the person of Jesus, divine and human nature are united without confusion, without change, without separation, and without division. And it, and it turns out that like each of those is really important. Uh, let's, let's go through them. Like if you're finger painting and you, uh, you take red and you take yellow and you mix them all together, what do you get? Orange. Well, if you take uh, divinity and if you take humanity and you mix them all together, what do you get? Jesus. Although that's not true. I, I misled you. It was a trick question. Um, uh, that's exactly what the early church said is not happening. It's not like finger painting when you're mixing the colors and you're coming up with a new color. They said Jesus isn't like this divine human hybrid. He doesn't have some kind of third nature that's a mixture of divinity and human humanity. Instead, they insisted, he is fully human and fully divine 
without becoming something else. So it's like, it's as mysterious as saying it's fully red and fully yellow without being orange. How, how can you say that? Well, it's a mystery. Um, they, they somehow go together without being blended. All right, so that's without confusion. Uh, without change, what's that about? Well, in assuming human flesh and taking human flesh to himself, the word did not cease to be what the word had always been. The Son of God didn't stop being the Son of God. And when the word took on human nature, human nature didn't cease being what it had always been. It didn't change into something other than human nature. In other words, both of these natures, the divine nature and the human nature, were united without changing. Uh, the word's divine nature kept on being fully divine, and the human nature kept on being fully human. So, no change. Without division, uh, you see, we might think, okay, we've got this. There's no confusion between the natures. There's no change of the natures. So that means that Jesus must kind of be like half God and half human, like Robocop, half man, half machine, or like a mythical centaur, half, half man, half human, and half horse. Um, the church says no. Fully God, fully human, Jesus isn't split up into parts where it's like this part is human, this part is divine. And, and this is related to the last affirmation. There's no separation. The natures aren't um, separated, which is to say like there's real unity. In the person of Jesus, we don't have divinity and humanity coming together in some kind of like relational um, relationship of cooperation uh, or partnership. We can't look at Jesus and say, oh, here he's accessing his divine nature, and here he's just accessing his human nature. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no uh, separation at all. In the one person, Jesus, the divine and human natures were truly united without what? Without confusion, without change, without separation, and without division. Which, which clears up all of our questions about the incarnation, right? <laughs> right? No more questions. No, of course not. Uh, we call it the mystery of the incarnation because it really is a mystery. It really is a mystery. It's a mystery, though, that changes everything. I want to just reflect with you a little bit on, on how this changes our past and our present and also our future, this glorious mystery of the incarnation. Um, it changes our past because God became flesh. God became flesh. You know, behind and beneath all of the problems that you and I experience today is a deeper and bigger problem. And according to the story the Bible tells, that problem has to do with our um, distance from God, our separation from God. When we read the first few chapters of Genesis, we read that um, and we see that God was created, God created humanity to to live with God, to dwell with God, and we see that his intention was to dwell with humanity on the earth in an intimate relationship of love and care, um, and that that's actually ultimately what it means to flourish as a human being, is to just live in the presence of God like that. Did you know that? That, that that's what it means for you to flourish, is to like live, to dwell in the presence of God? Um, you remember the story, though. Humans rejected God's grace, and they turned away from his love, and they attempted to live life apart from him on their own. And you and I do this, too. 
And the result is separation. It's, it's relational distance. It's feeling cut off. It's like, it's like our sin has put this impenetrable slab up between us and God, and we can't get through. Just imagine like this thick marble slab. And yet we know that we're made for the one on the other side. Um, we know that this is not the way life is supposed to be. We know that there really is like beauty and justice and goodness and truth and that we were made for that. Like, like we all have this sense that there's someone on the other side of that slab who can bring this goodness to bear on our world, but we can't get through. Um, and it's not for lack of trying that we can't get through. I mean, all, all religions are essentially attempts to bust through the slab from our side. A prophet or a teacher or a sage comes along and says, here's what you have to do in order to break through the slab. Here's what you must learn or accomplish. Here's, here's how you have to live. Here's what you have to believe. Here's some technique to practice. Here's some book to read. Here's some discipline to embrace. And it all amounts to trying to like break through that slab of marble with like, I don't know, like a wet, soggy Kleenex. <laughs> could you do it? You couldn't do it, could you? Can't be done. And it's what religion tells us must be done. So there's the marble slab. Here's your soggy Kleenex. Get to work. Soggy Kleenex. I should think these things through before before the sermon. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a better analogy. That's yeah. Um, John comes along and he says no. He says no. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the slab has been busted up from the other side. Leslie Newbigin puts it this way. He says. It lies wholly beyond the power of flesh and blood of the will of man to pass from darkness to light, to lay hold of the life of God. But what is impossible has become a fact by a movement in the opposite direction. Isn't that a wonderful line? What is impossible has become a fact by a movement in the opposite direction. God himself in his creative and revealing being has become a man and pitched his tent among us. You see, that changes everything. It means, it means the end of religion. It means that salvation is by grace. Religion says, you have to break through that marble slab to God with your soggy Kleenex. And, uh, and Christmas says, the slab has been busted up from the other side. Religion says, here's what you must do for God. And Christmas says, Here's all that God has done for you. Religion says, um, he's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. And Christmas says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like It is not up to you to reunite heaven and earth. It's not up to you to make things right between you and God. God has busted through. God has made his way to you. Um, the word 
became flesh. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He ascended to heaven for you. He's seated at the right hand of God and ruling over all things. And we think we can add to that. Christmas changes everything. It changes the present, too. It changes the present because it tells us that right now, like at this very moment, God shares our flesh. He has radically identified himself with us in all of our weakness. Uh, he really is God with us, and he is God with us in the deep, dark depths. It, it's remarkable that John chose to say not simply that the word became human, but that the word became flesh. Uh, it's like the word didn't just become the best of human nature. The word became human with all of our frailty uh, and all of our weakness that comes along with being human. In other words, family, God knows what it's like to be you. God knows what it's like to be you. Um, he's, he's so completely identified himself with us in our weakness and suffering. And, and remember... This is, we're not just talking about the past, we're talking about the present. Like the incarnation of the word doesn't stop. The word didn't just try on flesh like an outfit for a little while and then exchange it for something else, something better, something more comfortable maybe. Like the incarnation isn't a temporary phase in the life of God. God decided to become a human being and to stay a human being. And so even now, the resurrected, ascended Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And Scripture tells us that, that this resurrected, ascended Jesus is praying for us, interceding for us. Um, as a true human being who knows exactly what it's like to be us. Don't we want a God praying for us who knows exactly what it's like to be us? Who knows our needs even better than we know them ourselves? Like, family, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. So often when we suffer, we can feel like God is far away, like God is distant. It can feel like suffering is the least God-like thing that can possibly happen to us. But the incarnation means that God actually suffers. Like he doesn't come to us and and superficially skip across the surface of our pain like a smooth stone might skip across a lake. No, he sinks like a brick down to the deepest, darkest depths. So like, are you poor? Are you broke? God knows what it's like to be you. He was too. Are you homeless? Are you looking for a home? So is God. God knows exactly what it's like to be you. Have you been betrayed and abandoned by people who should have loved you and cared for you? God experienced that. God knows what it's like to be you. Um, do you struggle with loneliness? God knows what it's like to be you. Are you grieving the death of someone you love? Jesus wept for someone he loved. God knows exactly what it's like to be you. Have you, been in a, in, have you been in such a dark and hopeless place that you felt completely abandoned by God? God has shared that cry of God forsakenness as the human being Jesus. God knows exactly what it's like to be you. 
God knows what it's like to be you, family, and that in itself um, does not save you from your problems or make your pain disappear. It doesn't answer um, our questions about the meaning of human suffering or if there even is a meaning, but it does give us one thing that we really need, not answers, but God's presence. The incarnation gives us the presence of God, and it gives us the presence of God even when we don't feel the presence of God. And I think that distinction is so important. You know, sometimes we just conflate the presence of God with our felt experience of God's presence. But God is not our feelings. God is not an experience that we have. And so our awareness of God's presence just isn't the same thing as God's presence. What we need most deeply is not actually a felt experience of God's presence. I mean, that can be nice and wonderful. I praise God when those happen. But my deepest need isn't a felt experience of God's presence. My deepest need just is God, is the presence of God. And um, Christmas, the promise of Christmas is that we have it, that we have it, that we have Emmanuel, God with us. And so you are never alone in the darkness. You're never alone in your suffering. God is with you and for you in the messy depths of your human experience. The word became flesh. You might wonder, like, why in the world would God do that? Like, if you're God, doesn't that sound like a horrible idea? Become flesh. Become something that can be spat upon and, and struck and beaten and hit and hurt and crucified. For us, God did that. Out of love for us, out of a desire to rescue us and to save us. Christmas changes everything. It gives us a God with wounds. It means that God shares our flesh, that he shares even our weakness and our suffering right here and right now. And then finally, um, the, in, the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, it changes our future because it promises us and it actually shows us that God is committed to saving our flesh. So he's like, he's committed to saving us as we really are, as like these embodied creatures that have, I don't know, I mean, suppose we do have spirits and souls we just kind of trust that we do. But we know that we have bodies because we can feel them and see them and touch them. Like, I, I, I trust that we have minds, but we can't see minds. We, we wonder about some people. Do they have minds? Uh, but but uh, bodies we can see. And, and the incarnation says God's going to save us. Us. Not, not something that we mysteriously think is us. But like, no, he's going to save us. He's committed to saving our Remember that the Christian hope is not for the immortality of the soul, but it's for the resurrection of the body. For the resurrection of the body. That God has committed himself to rescuing our flesh. So one day he'll return in resurrected bodily glory himself, and he will complete once and for all his work of healing us and healing the world and making all things new. The incarnation changes our future. In the meantime, we wait. We wait. 
It's Christmas, Merry Christmas, but it's still Advent. You remember Karl Barth says that for the church, it's always Advent until that great day when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And so we wait and we wait and hope because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.